you are more than welcome if you want that audio to wake up in the morning, to go to the gym, anything you need it for, I can hook you up. Just talk to me. Okay, so we've been talking these last few weeks about Jesus in the desert, and we've been talking about this framing invitation around knowing yourself. How, how can you ponder what is within? How can you look into that proverbial mirror, so to speak, and see what's going on inside of you so that you can know yourself in such a way that you can know God better. There's this quote by St. Augustine, the early church father, who said, how can I possibly know God if I do not know myself? And that's really the invitation to ponder as we look at Jesus, we look at these three great tests that Jesus faced, how Jesus faced in these tests challenges at the core of what it means to be human, core of what it means to be in relationship with God, and how Jesus ultimately succeeded in these tests. So the first week, we talked about the hunger test. Last week, we talked about the power test. This week, we're going to talk about the insecurity test. The insecurity test. Now, I don't know about you. I, I don't generally view myself as overly insecure. I'm warm. I'm extroverted on different personality scales. And yet, as I thought for even just a second, I think all of us could acknowledge insecurities within ourselves. One such insecurity I face on a regular basis is when I go over to the gym uh, that I work out in, and it's that moment when you walk up to whatever the exercise machine is, and the person has just finished the exercise before you, and inevitably, you start taking weights off of the machine. <laughs> that, is a, that is an insecurity moment. Some of you may understand that one with me. Um, another very real insecurity moment, and this happens all the time, again, I, I'm sure you have experienced this as well, when you head to a social event, a party, even yesterday at the park, and you find yourself courageously and bravely initiating that conversation, and you're thinking to yourself, man, I am, I am really extroverted today. This is great. I'm connecting with new people. Isn't this wonderful? And the conversation's flowing a little bit, and you're having a good time, and then all of a sudden that person turns and says, well, I, I gotta go, and they walk away, and you find yourself standing alone <laughs> in a room with other people, and you feel like, man, I just feel a little insecure right now. Uh, third insecurity test, and this one, I think, again, all of us, if we're being honest, could acknowledge. The moment that someone says to you, hey, you've got something right there in your teeth, right? Like, who, who has not felt the immediate impulse to turn to cover and then to do tongue gymnastics within your mouth uh, to attempt, as you wander, fur wander furiously, what was the thing I ate? How long has this been sitting there in my teeth? Who has my reputation been ruined in front of because of this speck of food? Uh, I think if we're being honest, most people are actually deeply insecure. In fact, I think one of the, the sort of illusions or lies that we face in culture is that confident people or successful people are actually not insecure. I, I was kind of pondering some of the most powerful or confident people in our world today and was thinking first and foremost about Steve Jobs, who I recently had a chance to read the Walter Isaacson biography of. And what Isaacson reveals is that Steve Jobs, though on the surface he was a, a, an attacker, he was a visionary, he owned rooms that he would walk into, Steve Jobs was of course deeply insecure. He was born into this uh, situation in which he was adopted and never knew his birth parents for a long time throughout his life. And he, as he's sitting with Walter Isaacson, would confess, you know, I kind of was always chasing that feeling of security I could find if only I knew who I really was in the world. Uh, another one, uh, just <laughs> that tabloids have been sort of posting up around, is Jeff Bezos. Again, a man who I'm sure if we met Jeff Bezos, 
he would seem very confident, one of the least people we think would be insecure in the world. And yet, uh, it was interesting, just over the pandemic, a lot of tabloids started to note Jeff Bezos had been working out a lot. And actually, Jeff Bezos had recently been divorced. His marriage had fallen apart. He was now dating in a new relationship. And you can't help but wonder the deep vulnerability, the deep insecurity that resides in the heart of one of the wealthiest men that have ever existed. One last insecurity. I was thinking about Vladimir Putin. I was thinking about the fact that here is a man who arguably sits at one of the great superpowers in the world, who can do whatever he wants. And a few months ago, we would have said, surely Vladimir Putin is not insecure, a man who would charge into Ukraine and start a war just because he wanted to annex territory. And yet, of course, right, as this war has gone terribly wrong, as his military has been upended, I was just struck uh, a couple weeks ago seeing Vladimir Putin's statements about what Russia would do if anyone challenged them. And he ended his phrase, I am not bluffing, <laughs> which, if you think about it, is a deeply insecure statement to make. I think on some level, if we could all be honest, we all hold within ourselves the deep insecurity around who we actually are and the fear that at some point, on some level, if someone challenges us, comes at us, points out that flaw in the right way, then everything about who we hoped to be, who we thought we are, would kind of crumble and dissolve. And so it probably shouldn't be surprising to us then that Satan, the accuser, this mastermind of accusation, would come at us in our insecurities, would attempt to use insecurity as his final test, pressing on the identity of Jesus and saying, is there anything about who you are that would be tempted or tested or dissolve if I come at you in the right way? So here's what Jesus, here's what Satan is going to say to Jesus in the final test, the final trial that Satan puts Jesus on in the wilderness. If you have your Bibles, you can open up to the Gospel of Luke. This is Luke 4. It's also going to be up on the screen. It says, and he, Satan, took him, Jesus, to Jerusalem and set Jesus on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. I'll actually just linger in verse 9 for a second. So Satan takes Jesus to Jerusalem. If we track all these interesting and significant details, Jerusalem is the center of power. It is the center of political power. It's the center of religious power. Jerusalem is where anybody who's anybody goes and becomes significant, vocal, or influential when you're in Israel. And so Satan already is going to flag to Jesus, hey, here we are in the center of the center, in the hub of power here in Israel. I'm about to ask you a question. So not only does he take him to Jerusalem, he takes him then up to the highest point on the temple. Now the temple at this point, Herod's temple, was the temple that symbolized to Israel the presence of God, the reign of God, and the worship of God there in Israel. So there's a sense that here is surely the most godly, godlike place. And yet the temple was often used in Jesus' day as a sort of mechanism or tool to highlight one's prominence or influence. So if you had something important to say, if you had a message you were going to deliver to the crowds in Israel, you'd go to the temple because that was the center of power. That was the center of privilege, of prominence. Uh, if you wanted especially to make a religious assertion, you'd go to the temple. And so Satan has taken Jesus to the temple and we're told he takes him to the highest point 
at the pinnacle of the temple, which the ancient historian Josephus tells us, tells us was 450 feet up. So I did just a quick Google to put this in context for us city dwellers. That is a 34-floor building up that Jesus is standing on with Satan, and Josephus somewhat humorously, in my opinion, notes when he tells us the temple at its highest point is 450 feet. He says, if someone looked down from that height, they would grow dizzy. I think that's a little bit of an understatement as Jesus and Satan look down from the pinnacle of the temple. Here's what Satan is going to say to Jesus. If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. A couple of interesting things about this. Uh, Notice, again, if you've been tracking these last few weeks, there's this conditional clause that Satan says to Jesus. If you are the Son of God, it's actually a present active participle, which means that Satan's even giving Jesus some assertion, some leeway here. It's almost like he's saying, so assuming you're the Son of God, right? Like, assuming you are who you say you are, right? Well, then this will be really simple, Jesus. Just throw yourself down right here. Throw yourself down. And Jesus, have you read the scriptures? Because the scriptures tell us that God if, assuming you are the Son of God, will catch you, will protect you, will command his angels regarding you. And here's what's kind of interesting if you care about these things within the text. Satan quotes the Psalms accurately. (laughs) Satan captures the gist of what this Psalm is, in fact, saying. And I mean, if you think about it, of course, the psalmist back in Psalm 118 is saying, you know, God, God cares for his people. So ultimately, if you are following God, if you are a righteous person, then God will command his resources, his angels, to care for you, to provide for your needs. You're not going to actually find yourself stumbling if you are following God. It's a wonderful promise in the Psalms. And yet here, notice how Satan has twisted it. He's kind of contorted it. And it's all centered around that middle phrase, Throw yourself down. Just do this one quick extreme test of God, and then all will be all right. If you think about this moment, if Jesus were actually to do what Satan says, there actually are a number of uh, really intriguing rewards that could happen. We know back in Jesus' day that miracle workers often went to the temple, and the way you proved yourself as a miracle worker, as somebody full of God's spirit, as somebody really anointed by God, is that you would do something extreme near the temple. So if you could do any miraculous act near the temple, it was almost guaranteed that your status would go up, that your followers would draw to you, and that whatever your message was would be confirmed if you just do a miraculous sign. Yet the challenge, as has been in every one of these tests, is that Satan ultimately pressures Jesus to accept some reward, some positive benefit or outcome, at the expense of his relationship to God. Ultimately, what Satan is inviting Jesus to do is test God. He's saying to him, 
if you just put God's word to the test, if you just kind of demonstrate and prove, if you just throw God in this precarious moment, like just toss yourself over this temple, then in this one act where God is, God is good, right? Jesus, he's going to follow through. He'll, if you just test him this one time, then all of the things you've been longing for, all of the status, all of the followers, all of the confirmation, it's going to be waiting there for you if you just test God. As I've been thinking about this temptation from Jesus, this, this sort of call from Satan to test God, uh, I was talking to my wife about this message, and she pointed out from her psychological background a personality disorder. I'm going to put up on the screen the DSM-5, which is the handbook of diagnostics for mental health therapists. And maybe you have heard of this personality disorder, maybe you haven't. This might actually be very, very helpful for you. There's this personality disorder called borderline personality disorder. And here's what happens in a borderline person. They find themselves consistently testing relationships because they cannot trust in the security that either who they are matters to someone else or who someone else is is reliable to them. So often in borderline personality, you're going to find that uh, this is maybe a friend or a family member. They will swing between highly, highly valuing you like, they'll come up to you and they'll say, you know, you, you're amazing. You're like this really great person. Like, you're the best brother. You're the best sister. Uh, you're the best friend I've ever had. And you'll start thinking to yourself, wow. Like, one, I knew I was the best, so <laughs> thank you. Like, I'm glad that I followed through and that you are recognizing it. But two, like, I'm a, this is really special. Like, you really are relying on me. I really need to follow through for whatever, uh, normally at this point, they've disclosed. Whatever fear, whatever anxiety, whatever stress, whatever hurt they've experienced from those other people. And so you start trying to, to serve, you start trying to connect, you start trying to love, and inevitably, with the borderline person, something happens. Sometimes it's something you did, and sometimes it might not even be something that you did. And all of a sudden, the person will flip, and they'll turn back to you, or sometimes you'll hear it from other people that they've been saying, you know, that, that person never, they never get back to me. I actually, I don't think they're even that good of a friend. Like, did you know what they did? And they might refer to something else that you've disclosed, some other vulnerability that you have. And what's so crazy making about borderline personality is that the person believes on some level that by attacking and testing the relationship, they could get to a point where they finally can prove that the relationship is secure enough that they don't have to test it anymore. In fact, let me break down for you. In borderline personality, there's this test that tends to happen, and it looks something like what Satan presents to Jesus. It looks something like this. The borderline person will make some demand of you. They'll come up to you and say, you need to text me back right away, or you need to come to this event and tell everyone that you care about me, or you need to follow through on this thing that I've asked for from you. And as they place a demand on you, what they're ultimately looking for is they're saying, show me that you are safe always. Show me that I can always rely on you. Show me that there's nothing about who you are that could ever be unsafe. And what they're ultimately grasping for, trying to do, is to prove, if I just test you enough, I can prove that you will never let me down, that you will never disappoint me, that you will never hurt me like those other people have. But what's so heartbreaking 
about borderline personality disorder. For any of you who are, can maybe even come to mind, someone who's in your life, a friend or a family member who struggles with this or is somewhere on the spectrum of this, uh, what's heartbreaking is that the more that person tests, the worse the relationship becomes. I mean, inevitably, like if you're just being tested all the time, at some level, you begin to lose the ability to keep showing up. Like on some level, you can't actually meet all of their demands. You can't actually prove forever that you are always safe. You can't actually prove that you are the kind of person they are looking for to offer them that source of love and comfort and connection that they are craving. And so as I've been thinking about borderline personality and as I like, have a number of people sort of scattered throughout different webs of my life, I, I can't help but notice that on some level, with deep empathy, I think we all understand the longing, the longing to, in a relationship, make demands, find safety, and finally prove that that someone could follow through. Like, I have been forced to think about my dating relationship to my now wife, and how there were those moments where, if I'm being honest, I sent a text message, or I made a phone call, and I just kind of waited and wondered, like, hmm, does she really like me? Like, is this is this really going to come through? Or maybe you think about friendships you have right now. Those moments where you make that invitation. Hey, a couple of us are, are going out tonight to grab some dinner. Do you want to come? And you see those dots appear in your message. And you think to yourself, all of a sudden, oh, I mean, I know they don't really, like, they're not as committed to this friendship as I am. And then, of course, they respond, yeah, sure, I'll join you. And you think, oh, great. Like, yeah, no, we're good. Yeah, cool, cool, cool. Uh, or maybe this happens with a church. Maybe this has happened in churches for you where you've shown up and like we've all done it on different levels. You show up at a church and you kind of do the tests. Like how good is the coffee here? Like did anyone actually come up and say anything to me? Like am I, am I actually going to be accepted or embraced or enjoyed here? Uh, but ultimately, ultimately the real test here, the real question that Satan is pressing to Jesus is this temptation to test God, to actually turn to God and to make a demand, God, I am going to fling myself off this temple and you must rescue me. Uh, to find safety, to ultimately say the way God is going to show up in my life is that I will be safe. This psalm in particular is the one that Satan grasps on to say, don't you want to feel safe, Jesus? Don't you think if God really cared about you, you would be safe? And then ultimately there's this there's this longing, all of us have this longing, this longing for God to just prove definitively, like, God, come through this one time for me. I just need this one time for you to prove who you are to me. Yet, as Satan presents this offer, this invitation to test God, how does Jesus respond? Once again, it's going to be simple. Once again, it's going to be drawn from the scriptures. And once again, it's going to offer this guidance and invitation to us, especially for those of us who right now feel ourselves just longing, longing for God to prove himself towards us. This is what Jesus is going to say. Jesus answered, It is said, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Do not put the Lord your God to the test. If you dive into this verse, Jesus is pulling it from Deuteronomy 6.16. 
And in Deuteronomy 6.16, there's actually just a little bit extra at the end that says, do not put the Lord your God to the test as you did at Massah. And what Deuteronomy is referring to is a moment in Israel's history, you've maybe heard this moment, where the people are complaining because they're in the wilderness and they're hungry and they're thirsty and they need water now. They need water now. And if you think about it, I mean, this is, this is the criteria, right? There's a demand, like, we need water now, God. There's a safety, like, God, I am thirsty. I'm not getting what I need. And there's, a, there's this implicit test. God, prove yourself. Uh, ironically, this moment at Massah happens after God has already followed through on manna. <laughs> right? They've been getting manna in the wilderness. And ironically, this test at Massah is going to be followed tragically by Moses, who, who is this great hero. Moses is the one who trusts God, who believes in God, but who ultimately, in Moses' moment of weakness and his insecurity, Moses is going to be told once again by the people, Moses, give us water. And Moses strikes the rock twice. And God says, Moses, because you failed to trust in me, you will not enter the promised land with my people. Jesus is actually facing right into the great insecurity test. This test that says, I want at some core vulnerable place of my existence to know once and for all that God is trustworthy. And yet, as Jesus references this passage, he's just gently reminding us, it doesn't matter how many times you test God, it's never going to prove what you're longing for. It's never going to give you enough. And so Jesus' response and his invitation to us is do not test God. In fact, if I could frame it just a little more gently for you this morning, I think Jesus is inviting you by saying you do not need to test God. Here's why I think Jesus is able to respond the way that he does. And here's what, even if you step back and look at all of the Bible, this is kind of the, the framing of why the people of God don't need to test God relentlessly in order to know the love that God is offering them. If in the insecurity test, there is a demand where you're looking for safety and you hope that it can be proven, what Jesus sort of reframes and points to through his whole life is that instead of making demands, it's so much more helpful for each of us to look back at what has already been done. Look back at where God has already showed up. Look back where God already demonstrated God's love for you. Like Israel was there in the wilderness and they couldn't even see that like the bread, the bread they were eating had been given by God. So of course water's coming. Of course water's going to be there. And yet I do think the challenge that Jesus would push to us is that while our human instinct so clearly longs for safety, ultimately the way of Jesus is going to tell us over and over and over again that instead of throwing ourselves off the temple to just once and for all know we will always be safe, Jesus knows his path, the way he's going to walk, will inevitably return to Jerusalem, but is going to return bearing a cross. In fact, I can't help but play with my imagination, and you can disregard this if it makes you feel uncomfortable, but I, I can't help but wonder as Jesus is there, the highest point of the temple, he's looking out, if Jesus cannot actually see in this moment the place where he will later be crucified, that hill of Golgotha. And in that moment, Jesus, Jesus knows, like, safety is not the ultimate goal 
when it comes to following God in this life. I think the more we look to safety, the more we cling to safety, the less we are going to be able to realize God is trying to work through us with our suffering. God is not trying to avoid our suffering. God is actually trying to enter into our suffering with us and find ways to redeem our suffering itself. This is one of the most radical ways that we could be Christians here in the city. If we stop demanding and looking for safety as the ultimate sign of our success, but if we instead begin to present to the world, here is how God met me in my suffering and worked through it and with me to transform me in it. Finally, I think this is, this is ultimately the invitation over and over again. This is the invitation almost every Sunday as you come and you worship with us, as you receive from God's word. The invitation is, instead of trying to prove God, can you trust God? God has invited us into this life of faith. God is not here to offer demonstrations to us. God is not going to jump at our demands. In fact, to do so will ultimately hurt our relationship with God. Maybe if you're like me, you've, you've had those prayers, <laughs> those moments where you're like, God, if you could just show up this time, that'd be really nice. And yet, inevitably, whenever I've prayed those prayers, sometimes God does show up in the way that I'm asking for. God, if I could just have a job in the next couple of months. God, if I could get a raise. God, if I could you know, like work through this issue or just see a new friendship enter my life. And sometimes they show up and they happen, but those moments always lead to more testing from me. <laughs> they always lead to me at some new point along the road going, God, actually, do you mind just showing up for this one too? <laughs> God, do you actually, could I test you one more time here? And ultimately, Jesus is saying, you do not have to test the Lord your God in order to trust the Lord your God. Here's a couple of just practical ways I think we as a community could begin to live this out, trying to get it really close to the ground in light of this temptation. If you think about how Jesus navigated this moment, I've got three simple applications you could take with you from today. The first is your baptism. In fact, this is kind of a fun story. I don't know that we always do a good job talking about baptisms, reflecting on what baptism means in the life of a Christian who's already been baptized. Uh, there is a famous story with Martin Luther, the 16th century reformer who nailed the 95 Theses on the wall. If you've ever like, read or been interested in Martin Luther, he was a little bit of a crazy guy, as most people were in the 16th century. There's a lot going on. He's like all over the place. And one of the things Luther recounts in especially the first few years after his huge moment where he resists the doctrines of the church and says, I'm going to stand on scripture alone, is that Luther reports having these intense periods of trial, testing, and temptation by what he believed were demonic figures that were kind of like shadowy and there in the room. And as he's going through this intense psychological struggle, feeling all this vulnerability, insecurity, and doubt, Martin Luther reportedly wrote on the corner of his desk this simple word, I have been baptized. And for Martin Luther, this, this was the sign. This was the reminder. Like, faith feels very elusive, doesn't it? Faith feels kind of like hard to grasp, and yet for Martin Luther, as he thinks back, he says, I know I went down into the water. I know I came back up, and I know that because of that, I am now in Jesus, and Jesus is in me, and I know, like, if, if all else fails, I have been baptized. 
I think it's beautiful that Jesus has entered these temptations and these trials right after his baptism. Like there is nothing more concrete and vivid than the moment of water rushing over you than Jesus having the heavens open up before him and Jesus hearing the words of God that he is God's beloved son in whom God is well pleased. I think for you, as you face some of these insecurity tests, if you've ever been baptized, this is one of those signs that you can cling to. I have been baptized. I am a child of God. I do not need to test God to trust God. Another uh, really practical sign, and I know this often kind of comes up when we go over these temptations of Jesus, and maybe even can feel a little simple, and yet I, I think the more I ponder it, the more profound it is, is you can also return to the word, return to the Bible, return to the scriptures themselves. Uh, I find myself over in some debate circles within biblical studies where there's different contested opinions of what scripture means. And uh, it's actually interesting in this passage that the Bible is pitted in some ways against the Bible. And yet what Jesus is saying is, hey, the word of God, like the word, the word can direct me even in the midst of contortions, distractions, confusion. Like, there's nothing more sound than for me to return to this word. And so if you find yourself right now just in the season of testing, in the season of longing for something more stable and secure, we as a a team of leaders and volunteers before the service for maybe the last five months now, we'll just start our time reading a psalm, and there's nothing magical, uh, there's nothing like overly sacred about it, but it's just this solid thing. What if we just start with the word? In fact, I've gone through a couple intense seasons of doubting, of struggling, of wrestling, and whenever I have, it has actually been the Psalms where you come back to just this sense of immersion in God's love. And so for you, if you're wrestling, if you're testing, if you're struggling, what if you could return to the word? Just final practical thought. And this is the great challenge for anyone who is wrestling with borderline personality, anyone on the spectrum. Uh, This is, I think, the great challenge within myself. I need to resist the impulse to prove the relationship. Resist the impulse to prove. You're You're probably going to need to remind yourself more than once that when that impulse wells up within you, that could be a a test, it could be a temptation, it could just be insecurity, anxiety, anything else. What a therapist does with a borderline person is they just begin to work with them on specific relationships, and they challenge them over and over and over again, repeatedly. Hey, you don't need to test your sister to know that she loves you. Hey, you don't need to test that friend by the way that they text you to know that they love you. Hey, you don't need to test that coworker to trust that you are okay. And so for us, when it comes to our relationship with God, one of the most practical skills that together as a community we can work on is to identify when something is stirred within us, something is anxious within us, and we can resist that impulse to test God. As just a final thought here, uh, as we are closing out this series on Know Thyself, we've got a great new series coming next week on starting over. I have just been pondering this interaction between Jesus and Satan. It's kind of interesting. uh, The passage in Luke ends by telling us that this encounter, this incursion between the two, is not actually the end. 
And so I wanted to give you a kind of epilogue at the end of this sermon as we go to prepare for a time of communion where I just reflect with you, why did this conflict, this testing of Jesus matter? What was the significance of Jesus clashing with Satan, the accuser, in the wilderness? And so there's this verse uh, at the end of our passage today that intriguingly says, verse 13 of Luke 4, when the devil had finished all this testing, all this tempting, he left until an opportune time. Isn't that kind of fun, like a cliffhanger in the Gospels? <laughs> Don't you want to like open it up and start reading through? Well, if I were to take you on a very quick pass, the next really interesting, significant moment that Luke is doing in his Gospel specifically is that Luke is, is driving us back towards Jerusalem. It's almost like Jesus had this initial foray with Satan where Satan pressed on Jesus' insecurity, pressed on, if you are the Son of God, now's the time to prove it. Can you demonstrate that God truly loves you? As Jesus is going through his life and as Jesus finds himself often dismissed, often ignored, often betrayed, often left behind, this moment is going to occur, this glorious moment, where Jesus has a glimpse of the splendor that is actually his, uh, and this is often called the transfiguration uh, on the mountain. But here's what's kind of interesting and fun about it. This is in Luke 9. It's going to say, Two men, Moses and Elijah, appear in glorious splendor, talking with Jesus, and they spoke about his departure, which in the Greek is actually the word exodus. Jesus' exodus, which he was about to bring to fulfillment in Jerusalem. Here's what's happening. Jesus has faced into the very tests and trials that Israel failed, that actually humanity itself failed. If you go back to the Garden of Eden, what was going on other than a hunger test, as Satan points out the fruit, a power test, as Satan says, Eve, Adam, do you really not think that there's more power to be had if you just seize and grasp at this? And ultimately, an insecurity test. Did God really say, Eve, did God really mean Adam? And so as Jesus faces into all of this, he's preparing for this new fulfillment, this new exodus, where Jesus, if he can face these trials and overcome them, Jesus could actually lead God's people out into a new promised land, into a land in which death and sin itself could be broken. Yet there is one final test in the Gospel of Luke, and it's going to come in Luke 22. And it says, on reaching the place that is the garden of Gethsemane, Jesus said to them, his disciples, pray that you will not fall into temptation. And Jesus withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. This itself is actually the moment in that cinematic film that is the Gospels, where Luke says Jesus comes face to face once more with this great test, really what all three of these tests have been circling around. Will Jesus trust God, his heavenly Father? Will he trust God with his safety? Will he trust God with his demands? Will he trust God that when this moment comes, God will prove God's love instead of Jesus having to be the one to prove it. And in this moment, Jesus kneeling down in a garden with the full weight 
of temptation over him, Jesus is going to open his hands and say, not my will, but yours be done. I just want to pray for us as we move into this time of communion. Pray for you as you have been holding these three tests with me these last three weeks. So we've been wrestling with what it means to know ourselves in order that we could know God. And I can't help but think there's an invitation for you even this morning, wherever you're at, whether you've been following Jesus for a long time or whether you're looking into God again, that all of us have something that we tend to cling to in our hands. All of us are holding some kind of insecurity. And as we've been following Jesus through the wilderness, we see Jesus over and over and over again open up his hands and say, God, I trust you. I don't need to test you. So my prayer for you this morning is, is there's something there in your hands that God might be inviting you to release? Something there that if you could let go, you could actually come and receive that love that God has been wanting to offer you this whole time that you've just been finding so much difficulty to trust. Holy Spirit, we invite you now to come and minister to us as we receive communion and enter into this time of worship. Amen.